0: You're listening to This Outside Life Podcast with Lori Kaler. Here, we explore the lives of outsiders, those people who work or play in the great outdoors. At This Outside Life, we are committed to curing nature blindness and helping you step outside and step into wonder. Whether you're a bird watcher or a mountain climber, there's something here for you to learn and appreciate about this amazing world we all share. Today we are out seaweed foraging. Yes, you can eat most of the seaweed that grows along our coastline. Who knew? In this day of people talking about inflation and food shortages, well, it's nice to know you can find some really healthy food for free right down off the beach. I met up with Tanya Stiller, who was teaching a seaweed foraging class through an organization called forage sf as in san francisco i had seen their mushroom gathering classes which although i'm keen to do makes me nervous and when i noticed the seaweed class right near where i live i thought let's do this the forage sf website urged me to bring mesh bags ziploc bags a sharpie and scissors for collecting seaweed you may also want to bring a water bottle paper and pen for taking notes and a camera or phone Also be aware that the rocks are slippery, so wear shoes that grip and can get wet. That was an understatement. It's very slippery on those rocks. The place we were to meet was just south of Half Moon Bay, California, a small little coastal town with the claim of being one of the pumpkin capitals of the nation. Our tide pools were just down the beach from the very swanky Ritz-Carlton Hotel and golf course. The morning was chilly, windy, wet, and foggy, which is typical for this part of California in the warmer months. The hot inland temperatures pull the fog in from the ocean, and the result is a much wetter and colder temperatures than visitors expect. As you'll see of the pictures on the website, Tanya gathered the 12 of us and showed us the books she recommends for learning more about seaweed. She also passed around her very tasty, salty, and crunchy bits of bladder rack treats. Again, pictures on the website. Bladder rack looks like bunny ears, and it's really kind of puffy, and it is incredibly tasty. It's like popcorn when you oven dry it. After a short introduction, We walked down to the beach, rocks, and waves to explore our seaweed choices. We then walked down and started foraging. It was incredibly slippery and scary walking on some of the rocks, plus we were trying to avoid stomping all over the millions of tiny little anemones and our future food sources. I thought it was a bit woo-woo when she started singing a song of thanks. But then I remembered that our Native Americans always gave thanks for their food and animals, and living a life of gratitude and thankfulness is probably a good approach. And so we sat and listened to her song before we began. Tanya showed us how to identify all sorts of different seaweeds. Nori, which I had only ever eaten dried and in sheets from Trader Joe's. And it's funny, when it's wet and in the ocean clinging to a rock, it's extremely thin, like tissue paper, and very light green. And yet when you buy it at the grocery store, it's almost black, dark green sheets, and really tasty and crunchy. But it's utterly different when you gather it in the wild. Turkish towel, which looks like a reddish, slippery red towel, sea lettuce, rockweed, and other edibles. Then she started showing us how to sustainably harvest the seaweed by not cutting the stems or the stipe of the kombu blades. Kombu is another type of seaweed. But to cut on the blade up about two to three inches from the stipe. You'll see an example of this on the website. Seaweed should never be pulled so as to remove the anchor point or hold fast. So that's why we had scissors. She pointed out sea lettuce, rockweed, otherwise known as bladderwrack, which looks like two puffy bunny ears, Turkish towel. Um, It also kind of has a a surface like cat's tongue, feather boa, which looks like a feather boa, and this one that looks like it's the result of an oil spill, the iridescent mesella or iridae, I, I don't know how to say these Latin words. <laughs> As it undulates in the water, you can see the blue, green, and red sheen that kind of looks like an oil spill. It's really beautiful. You can see pictures of all of these on the website, thisoutsidelife.com forward slash seaweed. The nori was quite surprising to me because, as I said earlier, it's so thin, it's almost uh, like transparent. And yet, when you buy it in the store, it's all hard, crunchy, and nearly black, dark green. But it's really tasty. Back on shore we encountered a bull kelp that had washed ashore and our instructor illuminate us on whether or not to eat washed up seaweeds.'
1: Be able to see if been here and I, and I can tell you that most stuff washes up every day. So if it's out here unless it's like the one that we just saw unless it's like brown or something I mean a lot of it, I don't necessarily want to eat. But some stuff, like it's harder to access. Like if I see a bull whip cow, yeah. or if I see sepole washed yeah. up, yeah. I'll consider it. That's yeah. something like, oh, it's not very accessible. Yeah. Now it's here. Um, and yeah, it can go back down and it can decompose and different detritivores like crustaceans and shellfish can eat it. Yeah. But I can also eat.
0: After about an hour, our fingers were numb with cold, and we trudged back up to the sand and then to the parking lot. And that's where Tanya and I sat in my car, and I interviewed her and asked her questions about how she got into foraging, what other kinds of seaweed can we eat around the world, and other questions. Don't forget, you can see all the photos from this class on the website, thisoutsidelife.com forward slash seaweed. It's on now, so I'm checking the battery's good, we've got an SD card, all right, I'm here with Tanya, who just led our seaweed course, and I want to know, how did you get into foraging for seaweed? What was the impetus
1: for this? Yeah, so my story goes back, I would say to my birth, I grew up on a farm, Mm -hmm. so I've always had plants in my life, um, access to food, and... um, And so then as I became an adult and went to college, I actually dropped out of art school to study herbalism. I started taking herbal classes and really got into medicinal plants and um, studied herbs, medicinal plants for a couple years. Then um, since I was used to having free food growing up on a farm, I found myself wanting to pay less than a lot of the supermarkets charge. So I went to a natural foods co-op and volunteered. And so I could get wholesale prices for the food. And in that process, there was an elder named Millie. She was uh, probably in her 80s with snow white hair and a total hunchback. And she came up to me and she would flirt with everyone. But she came up to me and said, I see you have a van. You should come to my house, pick me up, and take me to the ocean. And I will share with you about all the seaweeds. And I was so stoked. I was so happy. I was like, yes, this now, had, is it. Now, had
0: you researched sea- seaweed before? Did you have any
1: interest in it? Um, I definitely had interest in seaweed. I didn't really know anything about it. Um, and But I had known a few um, other, like, you know, foodies and herbalists, like land-based uh, folks who um, had been foraging for seaweeds, and I was foraging for medicinal plants, and so I, I was very excited about the opportunity to expand my repertoire.
0: Very cool. Okay, so you got to the ocean with Millie, and how did she get all this knowledge?
1: I wish I knew. But was she when you're like an a elder, Native
0: American, or was she? No,
1: she wasn't. She was not. She was a she was a white woman. And, um, but she she knew all the seaweeds and brought buckets and brought scissors and showed me what the different seaweeds were and had me try them and taste them all. And it was just a really sweet day with her.
0: That's really special. It's
1: very special. It's very special. I'm
0: amazed you were able to retain all that knowledge. Or then did you research and then... You know, remind yourself what you looked at and all that?
1: Definitely, definitely. I, I got books over the years. Um, when I came to California, it was slightly different. So um, just started looking and studying, but I'd also studied botany and I'd studied mycology. And so it was part of just my interest in science in general and identifying the things that were around me that allowed me to study the seaweeds as well and to dive into those scientific aspects of the seaweeds. So you
0: said you studied uh, mycology, the study of mushrooms. Yes. There's a huge interest in mushrooms lately uh, with that Paul... Is it
1: Stamets? Yeah, Paul Stamets. Stamets, that
0: uh, documentary he did on mushrooms, just fascinating.
1: Oh, The Fantastic Fungi is a great movie, and it's just... It was such a touching movie. There's so many things about that movie that um, really touched my heart and even parts of it that made me cry, Uh especially when, well, the piece with Paul's mother and, um, her getting diagnosed with a stage four cancer, um, just really brought it home for me as somebody who had recently gone through a cancer journey myself. And the fact that she was able to, you know, use, The medicinal mushrooms as a like integrative like treatment plan um with her cancer treatment and that she's still alive today and is cancer free it just yeah it totally brought tears to my eyes and um, it was just a sweet sweet movie I so deeply appreciate it and
0: yeah his mother talking about how she did the turkey tail mushrooms four times a day I think it was and then she also did chemotherapy. You know, after that that documentary, I was like, okay, I'm just for preventative measures, we ordered Turkey Tail mushroom tablets and you know, we have them at home. But even before that, I had a visit to the doctors and she did a regular blood test and she measured my vitamin D, which is usually really low in women. Mm. And she said, "Oh my gosh, I've never seen vitamin C or D so high. What are you doing?" Do you spend a lot of time outside? I'm like, well, normally yes, but it's winter and it's raining, so I don't think I'm getting a whole bunch there. And she looked at me and she tilted her head. She said, Do you eat a lot of mushrooms? I said, Well, yeah, I usually have them in the morning with my omelet. And she said, Oh, that's why your vitamin D is so high. And I thought, Wow. Why don't doctors say this? You know, I mean, yeah. instead they're like, Oh, you have weak bones, here's some calcium pills. It's like, Well, what can I eat? You know? <laughs> yes. So, what are the um, nutritional benefits of seaweed?
1: Yeah, the seaweeds far exceed any land organisms, plants, mushrooms, anything in their, particularly in their mineral content. So, and minerals are needed for everything. Mm-hmm. So calcium, potassium, magnesium, zinc, you know, molybdenum, all of those, uh, iodine's a really huge one that's in seaweeds that's really abundant is really helpful for the thyroid gland we need iodine to um, create you know thyroxine the thyroid hormone to have all of our metabolism you know our metabolism uh, set into place so the seaweeds the I think the one of the articles that I read said that they contain 20 to 50 percent mineral by weight So So is that more
0: than like spinach?
1: Oh, by far, by far. It's, it's like, I mean, for most of it, it's, it's like in the thousands more. Mm. It's, you know, it's like double is like, you know, twice as much or triple as much. This is more like, this is like 10, 20, 50, a hundred times more in minerals than any other organism okay do
0: you have to eat it because some of those seaweeds I mean I don't mind eating them the ones you showed us and you but other people might be like oh this is so gross it's slimy whatever so does it doesn't matter the mineral content if you have it fresh or if you have those dried sheets you know you can buy from Japan
1: oh right like the nori sheets yeah well those are probably from farmed seaweed um I personally haven't like looked at the nutrient content does like farm seaweed have the same content of you know of minerals as wild um i think just getting seaweed in the body is important Mm -hmm. like and it's because they have so much more like even probably getting the farmed is going to be beneficial Mm -hmm. there's it's always going to be beneficial to have more seaweeds Mm -hmm. in your in your life and in your diet i would also say Um, well, most of the seaweed to preserve it, we're going to dry it, uh, or we're going to make pickles with it. Um, or if you have it fresh and you can harvest and you live near the ocean and you can harvest it fresh, then you can cook it that day. Uh, but, but you usually want to eat some raw and you want to eat some fresh. So that's, that's important. Um, or I mean some raw and some cooked. So does cooking diminish any of the vitamins and minerals in it? No, no, it doesn't. Actually, in some cases, cooking actually helps activate some of the compounds that are in seaweeds. For example, algin, which is in the brown seaweeds or the kelps, cooking it or actually making a pickle, so having an acid with it, will activate the algin, the medicinal compounds of the algin, which is to uh, bind to radioactive isotopes and heavy metals And in some instances, even chelate them out of the body. And even if you're eating seaweed, like brown kelp seaweeds, if they had any, not that you don't want to harvest them from contaminated areas, but say they had some contamination in them, there's nothing in your body that could break that bond. So no hydrochloric acid, no pancreatic enzymes, no bile, nothing that our body enzymes or whatnot will that produce can break that bond so it, it actually like in in some cases will pull it out of the body and and that's very very helpful for people who have um had exposures to radiation whether that's for a cancer treatment or whether they've had like what about been d- d- like you- downwind from like a, a nuclear reactor mm-hmm. or been around nuclear testing like living on like bikini atoll or some of the other islands that were bombed repeatedly um any of those kinds of situations um the seaweed is actually very protective actually there's a really well-known he was actually a professor at Bastille university which is the renowned like naturopathic college up in seattle And he had done a lot of uh, seaweed studies and sciences and and teaching. And uh, one of the things that he shared was that after the bomb was dropped in Hiroshima, that the Japanese government sent in the wards of the state, um, whose diet was, you know, pretty substandard in terms of what they were fed to clean up Hiroshima. Mm. All they ate was sargassum seaweed And miso soup, and there was zero incidences of radioactive poisoning.
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah, zero. Like, not a single one of them. So, what you're saying is the
0: seaweed bound with all that and chelated it out of their bodies.
1: Well, or just protected their bodies by Mm. eating the seaweed that protects the body. It's radio protective. So, if you're eating seaweed before, than exposures, then the exposure is not going to have an effect on you. You won't get poisoned from it.
0: So what about after? It also works that way? It
1: helps Mm -hmm. to have it after. It's actually more important to have it ahead of time.
0: Hmm. Okay. And then when you're in a Japanese restaurant, I love the little seaweed salad they give you, but what kind is that?
1: Yeah, it's mostly wakame. And unfortunately, uh, it's delicious, but unfortunately it is often bleached and then dyed. What? yeah. I Ew. mean, it's probably a good idea to eat it anyways, because it's, it's seaweed and it's good for you. Um, but I don't actually know what the nutritional, compo- like, value of it is after that has, after it's been processed like that.
0: Okay. And so you passed around this, these great little, you called them like something. Sea puffs. Sea puffs. And yeah. so... That what was that seaweed that we? That's ate?
1: bladderwrack, which is a Fucus species.
0: Okay, yeah, Fucus you, genus. It's sort of forked, like a peace yeah. sign. Yeah,
1: yeah, it kind of looks like little bunny ears, sort of. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so you got the biggest ones you could find, and then you dried them in an oven, or did you use? A I dehydrator? used a
1: dehydrator because dehydrators have air, more airflow. Ovens kind of cook and bake, and they'll steam things, and so they might flatten them. And I really like them to be puffy. So I like to use the dehydrator because it gives good airflow. And they were so yummy
0: and crunchy. It was great.
1: Yeah, they're, they're like better than popcorn. Yeah. And, and bladderwrack is the, is the seaweed that's the highest in iodine. So three to five grams of that dried seaweed, which is basically like a palm full, mm-hmm. like a small handful, is enough for hypothyroidism. So to, to not that you want to go off medication, but you could, if you, if you had a consistent supply of it,
0: I have hypothyroidism. So interesting.
1: Yeah. Three to five grams a day. Hmm. I mean, I've made tinctures of it too, but it kind of tastes funny. Hmm. Like salty and alcohol.
0: Yeah. So can anybody just go down to the ocean where they are? Well, let's back up. Is the seaweed the same on the Pacific coast as it is the East coast?
1: No, it's different. So um, the the Atlantic has a lot more dulse and it also has a different kind of kelp uh, that seems really popular there. They call it sugar kelp. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the one that they farm. The governments over there also allow a lot more ocean farming. They have a lot more seaweed farms. And they also do something that um, this former fisherman become seaweed farmer calls 3D farming. His name's Bren Smith, and he has some, like, YouTube videos on 3D farming. And um, they take different, like, ropes or lines... And they make this kind of network of like cubes and they have shellfish. So they'll have like oysters or mussels or clams. And then at the top layer, they'll have the sugar kelp. And so he's also making sugar kelp very popular there. And they use it for all sorts of industrial purposes too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think they, I think in Maine, they also use rockweed a lot for biofuels so there's a lot of different ways that people use seaweeds and, um, or, or extract certain things like carrageenan or agar out of them, uh, for, you know, for use in like ice creams and beers. So food products, um, for like facials, you know, body care products, facial masks and, and, um, peels and that sort of thing. Um, but the 3d farming, You know, that's something that's really just happening on the East Coast at this point. Um, I think there might be somebody doing it in Alaska. I think there's a um, native Alaskan fellow who's uh, doing that. And, um, but California Department of Fish and Wildlife really wants to protect our shoreline. Mm -hmm. They really don't want us to be farming along that. And I understand that, Mm -hmm. but I also think that in some cases... That's already happening. There's already oyster farms happening. Yeah. So why why can we not just expand that like where the oyster farms are to doing Plus, seaweed?
0: It's not a blight on the on the visual landscape. Like if you get out into Santa Barbara, you can see those oil rigs out there, and that's pretty nasty. Whereas totally. You know, seaweed farming it's all underwater, so it's not going to be yeah,
1: underwater. I mean there there are some really terrible seaweed farms, like in China, where they've cut down the mangroves oh. and done seaweed farming. so it, I, it has been done wrong. And it's also been done right in Japan. They've been doing it in Korea. They've been doing it for thousands and thousands of years, mm-hmm. and they've done it really successfully. And there's ways to do it sustainably. So I don't think that all regulation should go out the door, but I think there's ways to like integrate it in ways where we're already seeing, you know, its benefits.
0: Yeah, and then. So can I just show up at any seashore here along the California coast or Oregon or Washington? Well, that brings up another thing. Are the rules different between California, Oregon, Washington as far as how much? Okay.
1: Yeah, every state has their own rules and laws around it. So in California, um, you can purchase a fishing license. And with a fishing license, you can harvest 10 wet pounds a day. A day? That's a a lot. It is. It's significant. Yeah. Yeah, it's enough. <laughs> for enough. sure. <laughs> yes. And, uh, I mean, some seaweeds, you know, you wouldn't get that if you were just harvesting like nori. But if you were harvesting like kombu, it's heavier. So, you know, or wakame, it's heavier. So you might not be able to get as much. Um, but it's still a significant amount, for sure. Um, you, you had another question in there.
0: This Is the seaweed the same on the East Coast, West Coast? You said, no, you've, they've got that sugar kelp. And then can you just grab the same amount on e- every every state, or is there different amounts in each I, state? I think,
1: um, I'm not sure about the amounts. Um, some states you need a license, some states you don't. Um, the other thing that they have a lot of in the Atlantic is dulse. Dulse mm. is really popular. It's very rare to find it here in the Pacific.
0: Oh, that long, red, ribbony? Cow?
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, I didn't realize that was so rare. It is. It's
1: pretty rare here to find Pacific um, Dulce, but we do have some um, at this beach especially. Uh, We also have like sea palm, wakame, you know, I think they probably do have bladderwrack over there, Mm. but I feel like we have a lot more diverse species of seaweeds here Mm. than they have.
0: Okay. I grew up in Wisconsin around lakes. and. Mm. It, it was just the grossest thing when you fell down water skiing and there was all this slimy long seaweed. So how is the seaweed different in a freshwater lake than the saltwater?
1: Yeah, so that is not seaweed because ah. that's not a sea. So it's not saltwater. <laughs> so seaweed only grows in saltwater, only in the ocean. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's not going to be seaweed. It's going to be some other kind of algae. Um, a freshwater algae. And I do find freshwater algae to be really slimy. (laughs) So can you eat freshwater algae? I mean, there are some types of freshwater algae that people eat. I think spirulina is one. I think chlorella is another. I don't, I don't really know that much about them. I know about the seaweeds.
0: Well, plus it's so, you've got farms around these lakes that are draining Mm -hmm. all their pesticides or whatever in there so it's it's kind of dicey like
1: <laughs> yeah i think the fresh uh the algae that grows in freshwater lakes i think a lot of that comes about from over-nutrification mm-hmm. so the over is an issue and it's i mean we can see it on the ocean uh, we will have something that's called a green tide if there's over if there's like a sewage spill or agricultural runoff or something like that we would only have like sea lettuce growing and you wouldn't see the diversity of seaweeds that we can see here.
0: You know it's interesting because there is a sewage treatment plant in Happen Bay. I used to live near it up there and the the current runs from north to south but it's interesting that right here, a couple of miles south of that, it's so much diversity and so healthy. So yeah. they either must really treat the, the water well there or you've got a lot of currents moving the water. Or I don't know what.
1: Yeah, it could be a combination. Yeah. But but I, I always keep an eye out. You know, there has to be diversity. You don't want to harvest where you just see sea lettuce because then you know it's over yeah.
0: So you call that a green tide. Now we hear a lot about red tides, like, oh, don't get the shellfish because of red tide. Does red tide affect seaweed?
1: No, it does not. It it's does not. it's totally, yeah, the seaweeds don't eat the red, like, bacteria.
0: Interesting. Okay, so heavy metals, like mercury, like you don't want to eat too much shellfish or deep water fish a lot of uh, because they contain a lot of mercury. What about seaweeds? Do they hold on to that at all?
1: They can, um, the, the algin can bind to those heavy metals as well in the brown seaweeds, um, But I just don't see that much in the open ocean. I think you see more of that like in the bay or something like, you know. So you wouldn't want to eat a lot of like green or red seaweeds from inside the bay. Mm. Because you really want to have just the radio protective seaweeds.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then I know when you're mushroom foraging... Well, I would never, even chanterelles, I'm like, well, there's some that kind of look like that. Maybe morels I would never worry about because they're so distinctive. But you have to be careful with mushrooms. What about seaweed? Is there any that, you know, along the West Coast or East Coast that you can't eat because you might die?
1: Well, along the Pacific Coast here, we're safe, like on the West Coast. Um, I don't know about the Atlantic. I know in tropical regions... Um, there are some seaweeds that are problematic. One that I've heard is poisonous and it looks like a cobweb. So I would avoid, um, any really fine cobwebby seaweeds, uh, when I'm outside of the Pacific West coast here, um, you know, in California. And I would also, um... There's, there's a seaweed in the tropics that if you're like swimming in a bathing suit and it touches your skin, it can give you a contact skin dermatitis like a poison oak or, you know, poison ivy rash. Mm-hmm. So you want to be careful of that. Uh, there's also just a huge amount of this floating sargassum that floats off of like Mexico and also Florida and it washes up on the beach and I'm not really sure where that's coming from. Um, my guess is it's part of the whole ocean warming issue. But I don't actually know it's, if it's, you know, it seems like it's a loose seaweed. It doesn't seem like it's anchored somewhere. So the seaweeds that we harvest and eat are all attached with a holdfast to the rocks. And so we're getting them fresh where they live. They're not just free floating out there.
0: Well, that brings up another issue. During class, you were instructing us, look, you don't cut, like, what, was it kombu? That's the, that long brown one with the long stem, and you called yeah, the stem a stipe? stipe, correct. So, and, and a lot of people were thinking, oh, cut the stem, but you said, no, 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 that's where it reproduces from, so cut up from that a couple inches.
1: Yeah, yeah, actually, I have people cut probably about, you know, four to six inches up from mm-hmm. uh, on the blade. Mm-hmm. Um you don't, yeah. You don't cut the stipe because the stipe doesn't regrow. The blade is where is the growth region, so you only cut in the growth region on the blades.
0: And then what about the like sea lettuce and the other ones? Those are holdfast, so you don't just grab it and yank it up because once you take the holdfast, you've just taken all the roots and.
1: Yeah, you don't want to pull off the hold fast because that's what anchors it to place, and it'll regrow. So, yeah, you want to just come in with scissors and just cut it off and clean it really well. Leave all the little snails and the sand and everything behind. Um, I always run my fingers through everything and then also clean them in the ocean water.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that during class, like, swish it around in the ocean water, don't run it under the tap when you get home. Why is that?
1: Well, because the ocean is saltwater. It has everything that the seaweeds need. They're autophilic. So they absorb everything that they need to grow from the ocean. And that way, all the shellfish, everything that might get in there will stay, you know, in the ocean. If you're running over fresh water, then it might be causing them to decompose hmm. and um, start to break down. So if you really want to have them at their prime, then you want to keep that safe that way.
0: Okay, what is some of your favorite recipes? Like how do you like to prepare your seaweed?
1: Mm, Well, I love making the sea puffs, just dehydrating them. It's very little work. Um, I also love taking the kombu strips and dehydrating them and sprinkling them with uh, smoked paprika and garlic powder. So they taste sort of like like a barbecue chip. Um, I also love making noodles with sea palm, sea palm fettuccine, and I'll make like a cilantro pumpkin seed pesto with it and roasted cauliflower. I really like doing that. Um, I also love to make a seaweed salad with a mixture of different things. So um, I'll use like wakame and sea lettuce as the base and I'll add in things like, uh, like black pine um, or some Turkish washcloth or things like that. So um those are the main ones that I really like to eat. Oh, I
0: love the Turkish washcloth. that, that deep burgundy red with the it's almost like a cat's tongue or a washcloth texture. That, totally. that was neat. That was kind of fun. So what are some of your favorite books like for identifying seaweeds and also for cooking them?
1: Yeah. Uh, there's a for cooking them, um, there's a really good book called Pacific Feast. And that one has really good seaweed recipes as well as um other wild foraged foods along the Pacific. And um, for identification, there's a book that I really like called Pacific Seaweeds, and it has really good color plates in there and talks about the reproduction of the different seaweeds and uh, also describes the different kinds of seaweeds.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, What's your pet peeve when you take a class out? (laughs) <laughs> like what behavior should we avoid while collecting seaweed?
1: Well, definitely like cutting the stipe after I've just said not to cut the stipe. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'll have to go back and, and be like, okay, don't cut there. Cut here on the blade so it can regrow. So I really want to drill in the people to understand the sustainability aspects and their impact. And what, um,
0: what animals depend on the seaweed?
1: Mm, well... The abalone eat the seaweed, um, for sure. I I think a lot of um, snails eat it. And I mean, in terms of depending on, there's so many like birds and nudibranchs and sea hares and uh, different, you know, even the otters will like, you know, hold on to it. So they'll use it as their home. You yeah, know, the I've fish will that. hide in it, too. They wrap
0: themselves in it when they're floating and sleeping. I mm-hmm. think it's so adorable.
1: Yeah. So I think a lot of them depend on seaweeds for different reasons. Some of them for food, others for, for shelter and, and for for habitat.
0: You know, I've been on some beaches um, down in Southern California, like Carpinteria, mm. and a lot of this giant kelp washes up. So can you eat seaweed that's washed up on the sand?
1: Um. In rare occasions, you can. For the most part, that's for the garden. That's good mm. compost material, and it'll make your garden look beautiful. Um, but only if you're like visiting the beach every day and you see something that just freshly washed up, washed up, and it looks really good. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't take stuff off of mm. the beach.
0: Plus, you don't know what passing dog has urinated or whatever with us. This I've is seen. true. <laughs> So have you seen a growing interest in people foraging seaweed?
1: Yes. I mean, I've seen a growing interest just in foraging in general. Mm -hmm. And um, I think seaweed is something that people really get interested in because it is accessible and safe, particularly around here.
0: Yeah, we have beautiful coastline. Yeah. Was there anything else you think we ought to know about seaweeds?
1: I just think that seaweeds are, yeah, I think it's really important that people know that they're a carbon you know, neutral food, um, they sequester so much carbon. They're, they're really a food of the future. Um, and they're a food of now Mm -hmm. eating, eating now, getting used to it now. Um, start eating small amounts every day rather than large amounts every now and then it's so much better for your body. And, um, yeah, keep your mind open and try them out Mm -hmm. because like some of them, you know, some people are like, oh, they're so fishy. I don't like fish. And then there's some seaweeds that aren't fishy at all. Mm-hmm. So keep the mind open to try new things.
0: Yeah, I th- we had a rule growing up. You couldn't say no unless you tried it. So, mm-hmm. you know, out there, when I touched that nori, now I know nori when it's dried, and I love it. But here it is, tissue paper thin, kind of slimy. I'm like, really? This is nori? And then I ate it. I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. This is fine. Yeah. You just have to get over what's in your head about what's food or what isn't food or whatever.
1: Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, I think it's also, there's a lot of controversy around using seaweeds for a biofuel right now as well. Um, and I'll need to do my own research to find out more, but I've, I've heard that it's actually, doesn't actually help the environment that much to use it as a biofuel. So I'll have to find out more myself, Hmm. but I still am convinced that it it's here to save the world. Thank the you first. so much. Yeah, thank you.
0: I just I just found this whole class so inspiring and so interesting. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you, Lori.
0: Wasn't this class on seaweed foraging amazing? She was such a wealth of knowledge. So my advice, go to your local Japanese restaurant and order the seaweed salad for starters. It's delicious. And then get out on a day when the tides are really low and harvest your own. Don't forget that you can find photos of all the different seaweeds, books, and show notes on the website page, thisoutsidelife.com forward slash seaweed. And now, share this podcast with someone you know who loves the outdoors. Leave a comment on your listening app, and then step outside yourself in the beautiful world that surrounds us. See you next time.